You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Eins, zwei, drei! Welcome to a new episode of Josh Volos! Hello, everyone! Hello. Hello. Hello! These are my new producers, Una and Heidi. Oh, Hello. thank you. Wait, am I Heidi or Una? Una. Oh. Hi, everybody. I'm Heidi. Hi, what's going on? Oh, you know, it's National Accent Day. It's National <laughs> Accent Day. It's National Bastardized Accent Day. Sorry. <laughs> With that said, guess what we have today? We, oh my God, that was like Australian Irish. Yeah, it was. Guess what we have today? Guess what we have today? Um, we have some new. Your mom turned into a bear. Mine turned into a pear. You know, we have in, a new. In New Zealand, have, people come over and hang out on people's back dicks. Alan, you gotta, you gotta Alan, Josh is trying to make an announcement. Oh, my bad. I'm but talking. I'm a little turned on about hearing talking. about bad back dick. Yeah, you just gotta like you need a. <laughs> want to hang wooden. out on my back dick? Yeah, you gotta go on your back dick. You gotta stain your dick. Make sure it's nice and clean. So when the neighbors come over and they nice hang out dick. on your dick, that obviously. Or if you fit. have a small Jewish dick. <laughs> <laughs> I, you want to come hang out on my small Jewish dick? <laughs> Uh, I yeah. said deck. deck. But anyway, <laughs> I'm celebrating because we have three new Patreon supporters. And to thank them, I'm going to sing a song. Oh, no. Nancy Robertson, oh, Robertson, I love you so much, Robertson. Neil O'Brien, you are my main Neil. And Nicholas Favicia, I hope I said that right. Yeah, Nicholas Favicia could be Favicia. But I won't fight. Thank you for supporting the Patreon. Wow. I just made that up. I know you did. You know, for those of you at home who don't know, I'm on a musical improv team called Meryl, named after you know who. It's with the Magnet Theater, which is one of the only improv and, um, you know, sketch comedy writing places still open in New York City. Everything is closed. Um, and so I've been on a house team there for a few years. You should check us out at Musical Megawatts on Tuesday night. Just look at Magnet Theater, spelled with an E-R, not R-E. I know, crazy. Whatever. And you can get all the information there. It's on a Tuesday. It's on Tuesdays. And on you can Tuesday. see Team Merrill perform. Um, but today... The announcement was really creepy. It was talking Merrill Head. Yeah. Oh, on on my Instagram, if you're uh, not yeah. following me, you suck. At Josh Period Layman. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I made a they have this app called My Talking Pet, and you put a picture of, you know, a pet or person, and then you can make them talk and say things. Deep and fake. so Merrill announced that we had a show last night and said, Yes, I am me, bitch. <laughs> um, but today uh, we have a really amazing guest, Tanya Pinkins. Um, Tanya is maybe like a god to me. Um, she is, you know, for me, my favorite performances of hers were uh, Carolina Change, Wild Party. She won a Tony for Jelly's Last Jam. She's been in a million movies and TV shows um, right now. She, her new film, which I loved, Red Pill, has just come out. Uh, you have to check it out, redpill2020.com. And um, this might be the first time on Josh Wallows that I've been genuinely starstruck. 
Um, just really, really. <laughs> as opposed to me, every single episode. <laughs> but yeah no i was really 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 starstruck and i have been whenever i've seen tanya pinkins out and about i've been like tanya pinkins i love you so much you have a tony and you deserve more um anyway please enjoy our new episode of josh swallows broadway Everybody, welcome back to Josh Swallows. I'm so I oh my god, I'm just I'm I'm just oh fuck. I'm really excited. I'm sitting here with someone, you know, there are artists in this world that it's it's like they're a part of you somehow. When you watch them perform, it's haunting. And um I fell in love with Miss Tanya Pinkins during the wild party. And then it became an obsession. Um, She's here now. She's been in a million Broadway shows, a million off-Broadway shows, a million movies and TV shows. Oh, my gosh. Here she is. Tanya Pinkins. Josh, how are you? (laughs) Swallow? Oh, 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 I'm ready to swallow. (laughs) Hi, how are you? I'm pretty good today. It's a nice day today in New York. Yeah. Thank God. It's been fucking winter for forever. Yeah. Um, gosh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's such an honor to have you. Um, Very kind. So you're from Chicago originally, right? Yes. When did you know that you were the most talented person on earth? Um, no, I never, <laughs> <know>. <laughs> <laughs> never found that out. But I do. I did. It took me about maybe when I was like in my... 50s, I went, you know, you're pretty smart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But um, when did you start performing? I started, um, you know, first classes when I was about eight or nine in Chicago. There was like a little place down on Wabash Avenue in downtown Chicago. I feel like the woman's name was Frances Moore or something. And she had a little vocal classes and she did um little theater shows with her students so I got to be in Peter Pan and I got to be in a sound of music when I was like eight or nine years old amazing I would love a bootleg of you in the sound of music more than anything in the world um and I believe you had a you were going to go to school and then you got cast in your first Broadway show well, I actually was in school. I was in Carnegie Mellon. And uh, over Christmas, I got went to a open call in Chicago for Joanna Merlin. And uh, over the Christmas break, she took flew me to New York and I auditioned for Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim. And they said, we would like you to come back and do Merrily We Roll Along the following fall. So I got to finish my first year at Carnegie and then came to New York to do Merrily, uh, what would have been my sophomore year. Wow. Was it in the room that they told you that you were going to be in Marilee? Yes, they told us right there in the room. What was that like? Um, You know, Josh, I am a very strange, clairvoyant person. It was very exciting that I was going to get to work 
with the gods of the theater, the people I most wanted to work with. Like if you had a vision of like, who do I want to work with? It was them. It was albums of their shows that I'd been listening to in the basement of my house in Chicago. But I kind of didn't think it was going to be, you know, I was like, hmm, I just didn't have the feeling that it was going to be a hit, even though I'd never even read it. Sure. <laughs> like, oh my God, you're going to New York. You're going to be in a house. Hallberg show. And I'd be like, That's interesting because I have a similar sort of sixth sense when I'm working in shows. Like, I know what's going to win the Tonys. I know how that's going to affect the other show. Like, I just know. Before I saw Hadestown, I was like, well, that's winning. And, um, yeah, it's just like, and I was like, and prom's going to be here for a bit and make your peace with it. I have that thing, too. And oftentimes it'll be something that'll be like, oh, this is going to be a hit you don't want to be working on this show for that long. <laughs> right. Right. The golden handcuffs. Um, but it's interesting, you know, you have this spectacular career as a real genuine artist where you have created so many shows, so many roles and have worked with literally the gods of the theater, like George C. Wolf, who I am obsessed with. And he is someone that once you work for him, you are ruined for life. You will never meet, work with any artist who's more talent, more intellectually brilliant, challenging, funny, and with the humanity and spirituality as George C. Wolf. Yeah. When did you first meet George? I first met George when I was on the soap opera as the world turns. And he was um, an NYU grad student. And I was getting ready to do my first cabaret show at what was a club on Amsterdam Avenue called Sweetwaters. It's actually the club where Whitney Houston did her first six public performances and I saw all six of them. What? No, you didn't. Yes, I did. I saw Whitney's first six public performances. She couldn't talk. She couldn't walk. She couldn't dress. But that voice was unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. And then, and then I, she ended up coming on As the World Turns because I had originated a song on As the World Turns called Nobody Loves Me Like You Do. And then they decided that they were going to, you know, do a recording of it with Jermaine Jackson. And, and Jermaine didn't pick me to record it with him. He picked Whitney Houston. <laughs> the nerve. I'm going to write a hate tweet. The to, nerve. To I originated that song at Steve and Betsy's wedding. And then Whitney stole my spot. <laughs> Next Broadway con, we'll have you sing it. Something to, to really look forward to. And then um, can we talk about winning a Tony for Jelly's Last Jam? Yeah, well, I didn't finish my George story about my... Oh, character. keep going, keep going. George, um, this woman, her name is was at the time, it was Keisha Bostic. And I think her name is Catherine something now. And she was like, you really should talk to my friend um, George Wolf about this. And so I met George and I read some of his writing and it was like, oh my God, it was so amazing. And so he agreed to write my nightclub act and my friend James Lacine was directing it. And um, I am a very, I try to be very honest and authentic with people, but you know, sometimes 
you know, the words that you say and the words that people hear, you know, they don't go together. And I really wanted like to do, he wrote me an amazing show and it was about my family and my grandmother. And it was a beautiful show, but I had wanted to have some of those kind of monologues that, you know, ended up being in the colored museum. Hmm. And however I conveyed that to him, he got so angry with me that he didn't even come to the show and he stopped speaking to me for like the next seven years during which he became the George C. Wolf, head of the public theater and produced all those shows in those seven years. And I couldn't even get an audition for any of them. <laughs> wow. That's, um, that's, so when did you see each other again? So he was the head of the public. I think he was the head of the public by the time I saw him again. And um, he was, he was directing, um, Caucasian chalk circle. Uh It was in masks and it was set on the African continent and a brilliant actress named Cynthia Martell's was leaving the show. And I just got a call where I was asked to come and replace her, just offered to come and replace Cynthia Martell's. And I did. And that is where I met Charlene Woodard, who um, really is very influential in my career. And that was when I auditioned for Jelly's Last Jam, like in the midst of um, us performing Caucasian Chalk Circle, George said, you know, can you come over to Susan Burkett's house and like, you know, sing this song for me? And back then you were always um, doing demos for people. Like it was nothing for someone to say, hey, can you come to my house and do this demo tape or come in the studio and do this demo tape? I don't know if people do that anymore, but it was just a very common thing 30, 40 years ago. And so I went to Susan Birkenhead's house. I sang this song. I had this one scene to read, which was a very, you know, funny ba-dum-bum scene, like the setups and the payoffs were there. Didn't know what the show was. Didn't know anything other than I did that. And then they brought me back. I think I did it twice. And then they were like, yeah, we'd like to offer you to do this show. And you've got to leave for California like next week. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And I was, I had a small child. I'm trying to think. I think I had my second child and I was like a nursing mom, I think. (laughs) No problem. I'll be in California next week then. Bye. That's nuts. And what a beautiful, incredible, like, legacy that show has become. Yeah, beautiful show. What was the moment like when they called your name at the Tonys? You know, the New York Times, Frank Rich had said on Friday that I wasn't going to win. Um, so I went there just looking forward to looking beautiful there was a man named Gene London, God rest his beautiful soul. He used to live in Gramercy Park and he was a costumer. And when the studios, the Hollywood studios would like go out of business and get rid of things, he would just buy up all of those clothes. So you'd go to Gene London's and he had this warehouse of old gowns. And then he had these little women who would sew you into them or do all alterations. And Jean London said it was always about the undergarment and what is the body shape you want to have. So depending on the gown, like, is this a gown that's about the breast? Is this a gown that's about the waist? Is it about the hips? 
And so you'd pick the gown, you decide the body shape you wanted, and these little women would sit there and sew your body into a course. I remember once we wanted a really tiny waist and we just took like this thick gauze stuff and just made it tighter and tighter and tighter around my waist. And so for the Tonys, uh, Jean had found this beautiful, you know, one shoulder, navy blue velvet old Hollywood gown to the floor slit. You know, I had the hair done, the makeup. It was the first time in my life that I learned that when you do these award shows, the jewelers let you borrow diamonds, <laughs> a million dollars worth of diamonds on from Harry Winston. Oh my God. It was just like a dream come true, like fairy tale dream come true, watching all those award shows. And I was going to get to go and dress up and wear a million dollars worth of diamonds. What more did I need than that? Sure. And you looked gorgeous. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was a little thinner then, just a little. <laughs> oh, <laughs> weren't we all? Um, <clears throat> and then um, I have to say, like, Carolina Change is one of the most special shows I've ever seen. Um it was it was during like such a weird time in my life. I was working like three jobs, like up at four thirty, home at seven thirty. Couldn't afford anything, but I would you know get student rush tickets or whatever to see whatever I could. And so I saw Carolina change so many times, and I had my CD Walkman with a with an album like on the subway, and um, I remember just sobbing when you were singing um that's why well that of course but pass me a law your performance of pass me a law was so beautiful so simple so profound so real you know what what's the lyric and i want the night and I, and i want the night to last longer so I can sit smoking here. Yeah. So I don't ever have to get up, go to work, be polite. Be polite. Oh my gosh. It was such a thrilling, thrilling performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so looking forward to the, to the revival. Mm-hmm. And I'm just glad that this story is, is getting told again. What was it like creating Carolina Change? You know, it was, um, by that point in my career, I really just picked work based on the people that were going to be in the room. And wow, the idea of getting to work with, uh, you know, Tony Kushner and to get in the room with George C. Wolfe again. And um, so I remember when I read the script, I just thought, huh, well, this is different. This is uh, definitely not your traditional Aristotelian story structure. Wonder what they're Mm going to do with that. I mean, and I had done the wild party. So I knew that, um, you know, one of the exciting things about George is he is definitely always working in that mode of brilliance lies in the moment that might not work. He's always pushing the edge of what is possible and what else can work. So when I uh, read Caroline and was like, oh, this is, she's not, you know, your traditional protagonist who has an arc. That is, that's not the show there. That, that's not the story that's being told. Her. I was like, cool, let's see what they're going to do with this. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> just the imagination of it. Uh, I remember walking in the first time, not really knowing much about it, being like, oh, let's see what this is. 
And then that like, and I was like, what, what, what? And then the radio, I mean, it was just thrilling musical theater that took the bar and moved it forward. It took the art form and moved it forward. Yeah. Um, Just like I think Wild Party did, the staging in that was remarkable. You were remarkable. You and Tony Collette, goddess Tony Collette, you two together. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. That was a fun show. Yeah, definitely ahead of its time. Wild Party was so ahead of its time, but such a privilege to work with Mark Kudish and Michael McElroy and Nathan Lee Graham and Tony Kushner. I mean, it was like the cast was kick ass and that we got to be on stage for the full 90 minutes of the musical. Like we all had to craft characterizations and relationships that lasted for the whole time because no one ever left the stage. Yeah, it was wild. Whose phone is that? It's mine. Is it Broadway? It's Broadway! No! <laughs> it was my agent, but it wasn't a job, I know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I was like, let's take the call. No, it wasn't um, a job, I know. Well, I have been a fan for so long and I'm also a huge scary movie buff and I'm also a huge fan of making your own work because this industry is so stupid. You just got to put it in your own hands. Absolutely. You know, the rest of it is not up to you. And also not just that, but once this business, I mean, it's capitalism, you know, once they're like, oh, you do that really well. Now, can we get you to do that 1,000 times more so we can wrench as much money out of you doing that thing that everybody likes as possible? And I always want to see, well, what else can I do? What what else can I do? What else can I do? And capitalism is not so into you doing some what else when something works. So, um, yeah, I'm always the, what else can I do? What else can I learn? So, yes, I've invested in trying new things my whole career. Yeah, well, I mean, writing, directing, producing, starring in this film, in this crazy film, it's so good. Um, And with that cast, you have uh, Luba Mason, Ruben Blades, Catherine Erb, who I've been obsessed with since What About Bob? Um, Wasn't so good in it? Wasn't she so perfect? So I, I was gagged. I was gagged. I'm not giving any spoilers, but I was, I was gagged. Um, and Catherine Curtin, that's her name, right? Terrifying. Curtin, yes. Scenery just steals the scenes. Terrifying. Yes. And the bread. I'm not eating that bread. I was like, nobody eat the bread. Stay away from the bread. This is not a carb friendly thing that you want. So with all the excitement about Red Pill, we have a trailer uh, that I can't wait to see. Um, okay, Tanya, tell, tell me, tell me your favorite thing about the movie, about this trailer. Um, my favorite thing about this trailer is the suspense that it sets up for what is coming. Uh huh. America. The look that you give in the living room. <laughs> ah! Okay, there it is. The amazing red pill. We are a majority in this country, and we're going to win the election. Do you know what the red pill is? A red pill is someone who infiltrates a group and then destroys them from the inside. 
place is spooky. Some people like to live dangerously. Gas, why are you so jumpy tonight? You know what, guys? I'm gonna go back tomorrow. Did you hear about the creature woman that attacked a father and son hunting down here? I don't see the case. This place creeps me out. I think we should call the sheriff's office. missing or dead are brown people they're after all of us what do we do amelia we die but we take some of them with us when did you start thinking about making red pill um you know everybody always asks me because of how red pill ends like what, what so did you make that right after the the election and I'm like no like we talked about when you know shit and I made red pill in 2019, um, long before the world happened the way it did. Yeah. Finished shooting it November 11th of 2019. I didn't change anything about the script. Um, the, you know, for me, it's like, there's a, there's a kind of inevitability to, to way things are going to go. And, I just saw how that was going to go. And people treated me with such contempt when I used to say who was going to win the 2016 election that I was like, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was very painful to be treated that way. And so when I, you know, started thinking about the 2020 election, I was like, you know what? I, I can't even talk to anybody about what I think. I'm going to just have to take all these feelings and put them into a movie. Cause when 2016 happened, I think I gained 10 pounds just from the frustration of people not wasting their energy thinking about something that was just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so this time I was like, you know what? I can't afford to gain any more weight. So I'm going to take all this energy and I'm going to create, you know, this thing that even when I create it, people are going to think it's so crazy. Like people would read the script and they'd be like, Oh, that is just so far fetched. And I was like, that's fine. You know, it's a movie. So you can be far fetched in a movie. It's a horror movie. You can be far fetched. And lo and behold, <laughs> it's, I mean, oh, I just want to like talk about every moment that, that shocked me. Tell um, me. I love oh, Okay. Well, no, I'm not going to give out a spoiler, <laughs> but. I'm one of those people that you, well, I know the movie, but I'm one of those people that you can tell me the whole story of something and then I go see it because I want to see how they do it. What I'll say is when. When the man, I forget his real name, uh, when he, when he's in, when he goes upstairs. Oh, 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 Nick, the character of Nick. The character of Nick. When Nick goes upstairs, I did not see what was going to happen to Nick at all. And then the fire, I screamed. I did not see that. I did not see that. Um, And then, of course, the, the ending moments of the movie, which I won't spoil, but my, my like, screamed screamed and you found some really creepy old white ladies <laughs> some really fucking creepy old white ladies oh bless them all they were so great oh it's so good um well let's talk more i mean first of all uh 
the movie just won, or yeah, won the best uh, Black Lives Matter feature and best feature film at the Mykonos International Film Festival. Yeah, won best first feature at the Lulea Film Festival, won a best first feature at the Amsterdam AIRF Film Festival. Kathy's won a couple of best actress awards. Ruben's won some acting awards. I mean, we've won a lot of awards. We've won like 20 awards. The films won like five awards, lots of nominations. Uh, Europe is embracing it. America, not so much. People kind of don't like looking in the mirror. <laughs> Surprise. People do not like <laughs> looking in the mirror. Yeah, but like looking in the mirror. I, I hope, I, well, I think as the film keeps going and gaining notoriety that more people and more people will get to see it because it's fantastic. You know, what people can do is they can go to the website and they can just buy a ticket from the website. That's what I did. Yeah, you can go to my website. Yeah, the Red Pill Movie 2020, and they can sign up on the newsletter and they can get a ticket from there because, um, you know, people all over the world are seeing it. And I don't know that anyone in America will ever release it here. So I'm like, let's just make it available because it's so fun. Yeah. And so um, it's such a perspective that we just don't get to see in Hollywood. I agree. I agree. And have you gotten to do like horror before? No. Well, I got to do Fear of the Walking Dead. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I got to do Gotham, but that's not really horror. But yeah, I love playing villains. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, any place in the South or like the South that has a cornfield is going to terrify me. <laughs> yeah, we had a cornfield. Oh my God. We had a cornfield. <laughs> Where did you film it? I filmed it upstate New York. Really? Okay. It just reminded me of like driving to visit friends in like Yuck Yuck, Pennsylvania. And seeing like bumper stickers that said like if it flies it dies, mm. like being like oh god. <laughs> Some of the real signs that were in that community, like the signs that we put in the movie, are nothing compared to some of the real signs that were up in the in that community. Oh my god, that's awful. Mm. Well, congratulations on the film. I think it's remarkable. And now you're doing a, a web series, The Red Pilling of America? Um, we did, before the film came out, we did um, we did a whole series of videos with Marissa Keegan, Marissa Daniels. We did a whole series with Broadway people coming on to talk about The Red Pilling of America, which is what we saw on January 6th. Yes. That was the government that was actually trying to tear down the government. So um, we did that. You know, we did that. We stopped that probably in November of 2020. We stopped the Red Pilling of America series because actually the movie Red Pill started to get red pilled. And so um, I thought, oh, maybe I'm putting too much energy into this red pilling thing because now that energy is returning to me and it's happening to me. Mm hmm. So I, um, I ended the series and then, you know, the world did what the world did, but we, I'm starting a new series. That's probably going to be on HowlRound, um, which we're going to call through, through the black, through the black female gaze. And it'll be conversations with, uh, people like Monica White and Dunu from Dartmouth and Yasmina Price from Yale and, um, Nicole Hodges Persley from UC Kansas and Nicole Brewer from Howard. And we'll be exploring, um, 
the world and creativity through the eyes of a black woman. Um, Cause I think that that's what I really did with red pill. It's like, yeah, this is what scares most people, but this is what scares black women. Yeah, sure. And um, you're such an incredible artist. Um, I just love how um, you can, you can show stories and show yourself and um, show things that the world needs to see uh, through your eyes. I think that's beautiful and powerful. And uh, you also have a podcast. You can't say that. Yeah. Tell me about it. Um, well, it's, you know, uh, conversations with people that I find interesting and I find most people interesting. I feel like if you actually really take the time with people, everybody has a fascinating story. So as I travel around the world and I travel a lot, I meet people and they're fascinating. And I'm like, I want to share them with my theater community because these people are fascinating. And so many times when actors are doing research, they've got to go to a book, mm-hmm. but listening to a conversation with two people is just so much, so much more of a richer way to learn about stories and possibilities of how people behave and how people think. So it's been my privilege to share some of the amazing people I've had the privilege to know on my podcast. You can't say that. And it's, you know, I don't have to agree with them or like them. I mean, I have some challenging conversations. <laughs> I'm doing Podmax this week with three entrepreneurs and I'm like, do they look listen to my podcast? Do they know? <laughs> and then <laughs> I, I, I like a little confrontation. I like a little controversy. <laughs> Well, that's why you're there because you're, I mean, one thing that I love about you is that you're open about what, what you're feeling. You're, you're open about it. You create dialogues and you don't back down from having real talks. It is to me, I, I say I am always willing to shove my foot in my mouth for the sake of building a bridge to somebody else. Sure. And sometimes that is the only way you can. When you can be willing to make a fool of yourself Mm -hmm. and stand in that and not rush back to defend, then you are vulnerable in someone's presence and you make a space for them to be with you. Mm -hmm. Um, I always try to say people's names that are complicated. And I love it when they start laughing at me. I mean, I'm trying honestly to say it. I'm not trying to mess it up. But the laughter they have at me for trying and messing up, and I keep doing it until I get it right. And I'm pretty good because I'm a singer, so I got good ears. But you see that this appreciation for them saying that, oh, it is really hard, but look how hard they're trying. Isn't that cute? And it's just a bonding kind of thing that happens when you're willing to be vulnerable in front of other people. Yeah. Where did you get your love of other people's stories from? You know, I think it probably comes from growing up in a house with five living generations. Mm. And we also were always bringing immigrants into our home. Hmm. So um, there were Filipinos and there were people from the Caribbean and they lived in our homes and we, you know, shared beds and, So um, I just was always around people who were so different from me and it was always fascinating to me and there was never any judgment about it. So I've always had that curiosity. And I think my first trip out of the country, my grandmother took me to Mexico for my eighth grade graduation. 
And I remember thinking about my aunt and grandmother. I was like, oh, they're ugly Americans. I don't ever want to be like them. You know, like they were complaining because they didn't have hot dogs because we were in Mexico and it was tacos. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, no. When you go to another country, you are supposed to try to live like the people of the country live. Like that's the point of traveling, not to take your home with you, but to go in and like melt into another culture and try to experience what it's like to live the way the people there live. That's the way I travel. Where are some of the places that you've gone to that you've loved like that? Oh my God, I've I've done a lot of travel. <laughs> so let me try to go backwards in time. I drove the whole ring road of Iceland by myself a couple of years ago. Um, I think right after that, I did Berlin, um, Prague, Budapest, Buda and Pesh. Um, Turkey is one of my favorite places. I've traveled all over Turkey, hung out with these Muslim men who I know probably never even had a conversation with their wives, but I'm playing cards with Muslim men in Cappadocia. They took me out to the club where there were only men. And I'm totally clear, like they clearly don't respect me as a woman because they wouldn't be treating me like this. But I'm like, the fact that they don't respect me as a woman is why I'm getting this inside experience of what it's like to be a Turkish Muslim man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, of course, England and France and Spain and Morocco. Oh, amazing. Um, I've been to Egypt. I've been to uh, Senegal and the Gambia. I drove from the top of Senegal to the bottom, picked up hitchhikers, went and stayed in their compound. Terrifying. It was like a place where, you know, every mosquito there has um, whatever malaria or sleeping disease. Every disease possible. Exactly. And then we're like, you know, they're, they're serving us the food, which is, you know, everybody eats in the same thing and you got to you eat with your right because you wipe your ass with your left and, you know, trying to, you know, push my comfort zone. But there's some things like, oh, I don't know that I'm going to be able to do that. Um, of course, Canada. Um, I spent Seoul. I went to Seoul in the middle of the pandemic. I spent September and October 2020 in Seoul because my editor, Minji Kong, is South Korean. And so I went there. And so I went all over South Korea, Jeju and Busan. Yeah. And, you know, went, you know, where you go to the fish market and they just point at some fish in the tank and take them out and chop them up and you just eat the raw fish. Like, this is not like sushi. This is like just they take some fish and slice them up and then you eat the raw fish. It was fabulous. Where else have I been? That's bananas. Oh, You've been to Russia? India. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you need to write a show about your journeys or a book about your journeys or a reality show that follows you around the world. Um, that's incredible. I forgot all of my South, South Asia. I've been to Vietnam. I've been to Thailand. I've been to Singapore. Um, I've been to Indonesia. Um, yeah, <laughs> I've traveled a lot. I've been to all 20, like 26 of the Caribbean islands. Um, yeah, I travel a lot. It's my wow. thing. Like there's nothing that makes me happier. Oh gosh, I did seven weeks backpacking China by myself. By I yourself? China for the World Women's Conference in Beijing in 1995. There has never been another World Women's Conference since 1995. No con con country has hosted it. I went with Ruth 
Gruber, who is dead, but she had like this surge in her career when she was 95 years old. She is the first female journalist to cross the Arctic Circle. She rescued Jews during the Holocaust. Um, I traveled with her for New Woman magazine as her photographer and was at the World Women's Conference, ended up, you know, taking over and giving a lecture there. Hillary Clinton was there and it was embargoed in the country. So Chinese people did not know Hillary was there, but got to hear Hillary speak there. And then I went and backpacked for seven weeks, went all the way up to Lijiang, got to take a local boat down the Yangtze River before they dammed it and, you know, covered up 4,000 acres of land, got to go in this temple of the Three Kings, which is the story of the origin of China that is now buried underwater. You can't even go there anymore. Like I've had some amazing travel experiences. <laughs> oh my gosh, it sounds like it. That's so rich. I mean, does does all of your traveling affect your art, do you think? I think it affects my art because it just gives me... Um, so many more perspectives about what human responses are. Like, I'm like, well, you know, if I was this or if I was that or that, you know, yeah, I think that that's how it affects me. And it just lets, it, it always reminds me that what I experience here in America is just this tiny narrow view of what, what the human capacity is. Yeah. <clears throat> I find it so easy to get caught up in the, the horrible bullshit that, plagues our country. It, it can be very difficult to look outside of, of our spectrum. Depressed. I've been very, very, very depressed. And, you know, all of the, the death and the murder and every time, you know, an Elijah McClain or a Duante Wright and mm -hmm. nobody's talking about the two men, Dominique Williams and James Lionel Johnson, who were killed this week by an off-duty Pentagon officer who thought they were stealing a car, so he shot into the car, killing two men. Oh. Um, there's so many, and I honestly, this week, I was just like, I can't, I don't see how I can make it better. I don't see it even getting better in my lifetime, and I, I'm, I'm giving great, contemplating just moving to the African continent and just living there for a while, and so I can, you know, just like, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts yeah. so much. I will say that you make it better for so many people. Um, you are inspiring. It's important for people to see powerful women use their voice. And um, I, you know, when you, you can't carry the weight of the world on you, but you do make a difference. Well, and uh, you feel, always have. Doesn't feel that way, but. I, you know, I want, wish I could do more and it, it's just hard. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> um, well, I'm really, really grateful for you coming on the show today and, uh, taking some time to, uh, talk to me about your amazing career, your amazing life. And, um, also just so I can thank you for the work that you do and, um, how much you mean to me. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate you. Ah, oh, okay. Now I'm crying. Um, 
Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in for another Josh Swallows Broadway. You can support us at our Patreon at patreon.com slash Josh Swallows Broadway, or you could just enjoy this shit for free, because why not? Uh, thank you again, Tanya Pinkins. You're a star, not just as an entertainer and artist, but as a human being. And I, I just, I, I love you very much. Thank you, Josh. I really appreciate your kind words. You're welcome. All right. Bye, everybody. Josh Swallows Broadway is produced by Alan Seals, Dory Berenstein, and myself, Josh Lehman, with associate producer Elizabeth Wheelis. And special thanks to our Patreon producers, David Rimmer and Josh Harris. You can join them. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash Josh Swallows Broadway. Leave a rating. Leave a review. I read them. This is how I continue living. Help me live. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for keeping Broadway alive. And swallow you soon. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.